All right, this evening we're looking at verses 57 to 80 of Luke chapter 1. This is the longest portion of this chapter and the final portion of it. We've been talking about narrative patterning over the past weeks, and we've discovered that there is narrative patterning in the previous units or narrative sections of this gospel based upon location. And we've observed how that location shifts so that there's a narrative shift to a different location. But we've also noticed how Luke bookends things, that is, in a place where one narrative begins That's where the narrative ends. And then in the place where the next narrative begins, that's where the narrative ends. So we've been paying attention to these uh, narrative clues, that is, these on-location clues that Luke has given to signal the development of his story. We come then to the longest section of this first chapter, and we ask the question, Is there narrative patterning here? If location has been the pattern prior to this, is location the pattern here? Where are we in verse 57? We're in the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And where is that? It's in the hill country of Judah. It's in the Judean hills. And what town are they living in? We do not know. One of those little interesting features. We think about that for a moment. He certainly specifies Nazareth as the home of Mary and eventually Joseph as well. But he does not specify the name of this town where John the Baptist is born. Is that in order to de-emphasize the role of John the Baptist in relationship to Christ? Uh, Interesting, I'm sure that it's not because he didn't know what the name of the town was, because he had done this thorough research, and knowing that they lived in the Judean hills, it would have been a half-step to find out what the name of the town was in the Judean hills where they lived. But at any event, he doesn't mention it, and so we're left to ponder that. All right, now where does this section end? You'll notice I've given you the clue. The section extends from verse 57 to verse 80. Where does this unit end? It ends in Israel. What part of Israel? What's verse 80 tell you, Abigail? He's in the wilderness. All right, now hold your finger there and turn over to chapter 3, verse 2. That, of course, is describing John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 80. And he is in the wilderness. And then he drops out of the story. Chapter 2 is about the nativity scene, etc. But notice chapter 3, verse 2. 
Where do we find him? In the wilderness. All right, so where John the Baptist goes at the end of the first chapter, he reappears at the beginning of the second chapter in the wilderness around the Jordan. In fact, I would translate it wildernesses. As you see in verse 8, it's deserts, plural. The Greek word is plural here. Deserts, plural, because of the variety of deserts that are on the Transjordanian, that is, on the east side of the Jordan Rift. All right, now, this section, 57 to 80, features Luke's second Christmas hymn. And it takes its name from the Latin text, or the first word of verse 68, the word in Latin, benedictus, which means blessed. Now, there aren't very many choral benedictuses, but I've uh, placed a link to one by Rayfon Williams, who may be familiar to you as the British composer who wrote Fantasia on Greensleeves, a beautiful piece of music. And indeed, Vaughan Williams, who's no longer alive, Vaughan Williams, 20th century British composer, composed a great deal of lovely sacred music, even though he was not a believer. But he did it for the sake of the British tradition, the Anglican tradition, that is the tradition of the Anglican Church of England, and was joint editor of perhaps the most famous English hymnal ever produced, the Oxford English Hymnal of 1906. And the reason that hymnal is so famous is because Vaughan Williams and others at that time in England were gathering up the old plain song tradition from Wales and Scotland and Ireland and England and France, and they were using those tunes for the hymnody of the Anglican cathedrals and those tunes, some of which have migrated into the Trinity hymnal and other non-Anglican Protestant hymnals, are gorgeous and delightful to sing. Very singable music. Well, in addition to his work on the hymns of the Anglican Church, Vaughan Williams wrote several major religious works, and I want to mention some of them to you. Because if you're not familiar with them, you may actually want to seek them out. You can find patches of these or clips of these on the Internet now. Actually, you can find whole performances of them on the Internet, so you don't have to actually buy the disc. But nonetheless, uh, he's written some things which are quite quite important. They're, they're really quite spectacular. And one of my favorites is his Christmas Oratorio. It's called Hodie, which comes from the Latin phrase Hodie Christus Natus Est. This is the day Hodie Christ has been born. Christus Natus Est. And in the Hodie, in addition to other texts, Von Williams incorporates part of John Milton's hymn on the morning of Christ's nativity, and he has a glorious setting for the section of the poem that he chooses. And I mentioned Hilton, Milton's hymn. <coughs> earlier in this series, and so you can hear a a choral rendition of a part of that poem 
in Vaughn Williams' Hodier, in addition to some other spectacular Christmas-style uh, music <clears throat> in that piece. Now, <clears throat> he also wrote a piece on the book of Job. In other words, he tried to put the narrative or the story of the book of Job as it unfolds throughout the book. He tried to put that to music, <clears throat> and he does an excellent job of it, particularly in terms of the dramatic opening glory scene when Satan enters God's presence in heaven to dicker or to make his challenge about Job. In any event, here's another piece of music which is quite vivid and tells the story of the life of Job musically, which, of course, might seem strange to you, but nonetheless, as you listen to the piece, as you get used to the piece, you understand what he's trying to suggest from the story of Job as you know it in the Bible. He also wrote an opera. He actually wrote several operas, but the one opera that I want to mention is Pilgrim's Progress. He used John Bunyan's famous allegory, and at the end of his opera, he has one of the most glorious choral entrances into the celestial city, a marvelous musical rendition of the portrait of the kingdom of heaven. It is majestic. It'll raise your heart and lift the uh, hairs on the back of your head. It is just fabulous. Now, the last thing I want to mention is his arrangement of the poems of George Herbert. George Herbert, the one of the mystical poets, along with John Donne of the 17th century, that great era of poetry, which included Milton, although Milton is not one of the mystical poets, <clears throat> George Herbert was probably the most accomplished of them, at least in my biased opinion, and has written uh, one of the most famous pieces of that poetry called The Sacrifice, in which you have the repeated choral line, was ever grief like mine, was ever grief like mine. He's describing the death of Christ with that tremendous punchline after virtually every stanza. Well, George Herbert wrote numerous uh, religious poems, beautiful Christian material, uh, actually wonderfully Protestant material, even Calvinistic in a way. <clears throat> but well, Rayfon Williams took five of these poems called the Five Mystical Songs and put them to music <clears throat> in uh, baritone solo and choral rendition. So the Five Mystical Songs of Vaughan Williams are also quite lovely and quite poignant, particularly the one on Easter morn. The poem itself is impressive, but the way Vaughn Williams has set the music to <clears throat> set the piece to music is actually quite arresting. At any rate, there's my uh, <clears throat> paid musical advertisement for your education, stimulation, and your edification, understanding that great choral music, great secular, great Christian choral music is very inspiring and can actually be a means of edification and devotion to you. As you listen to the music, you begin to see the text. You begin to drama of the text, etc. That's true of oratorial, like Handel's Messiah or Handel's Israel and Egypt or Mendelssohn's Elijah or Brahms' Requiem, etc. All of these religious pieces which will carry your soul 
into a deeper understanding of the beauty of the kingdom of heaven because, of course, heaven is full of music. It is full of great angelic choral music into which we, of course, will audition once upon a time or once upon an eternal non-time. All right, now, the structure of this unit does not follow a shift in location paradigm except at the very beginning and the very end. But you'll notice that I've laid out three sections or three units. And so the question is, what's the method to my madness? Why have I lined out verse 57 and 58 underneath, then 59 and 66, etc.? So as you take a look at verses 57 and 58, let's see if you can find it. As you look at verses 59 and 66, let's see if you can find it. Once again, when we're looking for structure, we're looking for recursive patterns. Let's see if you can detect the recursive patterns. If you can't, it's all right. I have the answer, as you know. Why don't I give you a hint and have you compare verse 58 with verse 66? What recursion do you see? The neighbor's hearing? Yes. Very good. Verse 58, those who heard. Verse 66, all who heard. It is the same Greek word. It is an intentional duplication. All right, so... There are those neighbors and relatives in verse 58 who have heard, and there are all all others who have heard in verse 66. What is being marked, or what are they remarking about? So verse 57 is telling you about what? The birth of John the Baptist. So we have a time event. Now notice we're not given the month. We're simply saying he was born. But there is a time event in verse 57. John the Baptist's birthday. Okay. What do we have in verse 59? We have another time event, don't we? But this one is given eight days later. So we have another event which is timed, namely the circumcision and the formal naming of John the Baptist. Now, that structures these two small sections of this larger section. They are folded in on themselves with respect to the birthday and to respect to the covenant circumcision day. But notice how verse 66 ends. It ends with an interrogative. It ends with an unanswered 
interrogative. What will he be? And you will notice the difference in John the Baptist. Even as this question asks about the difference in the child. He is filled with the Holy Spirit from his conception, as verse 15 of this first chapter tells us. He has a different name. He does not have the name of his father. The crowd is concerned that he doesn't carry on the family name. No, he's given the name that was revealed to Elizabeth by the angel. He shall be called John or Yohanan, which means God is gracious. And then he withdraws from the hill country of Judea to the deserts or wilderness of Transjordan in verse 80. What will he be? At the end of the first chapter, we still do not have that question answered. And we realize when we come to the reappearance of John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 2, even as a youth, we realize he defines himself in terms of the wilderness. He does not define himself in terms of the Judean hill country. The name of where he hangs out from chapter 3 on is on the Jordanian Rift. We know the location. We know, in fact, some places where he actually conducted his ministry. We've got the names of those towns. We still don't know the name of the place where he was born, except it was in the Judean Hills. He just simply pops onto the scene. Out of the desert. Very much like someone else just simply pops onto the scene of history and ends up in the Transjordanian deserts. And of course I'm referring to Elijah the Tishbite who in 1 Kings 17 just appears on the scene. With no notice about where he was born, who his mother and father were, what his career was before that. He did, poof, he's just right in front of Ahab. And here's John the Baptist in chapter 3, right in front of the Jewish world, on the stage of history as the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist will grow up, and he will minister in the wilderness of the prophet who projects the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as Isaiah himself predicted. What will he be? He will be one who says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The wilderness, which identifies him. The wilderness identifies John the Baptist. The desert wilderness identifies John the Baptist on the Transjordanian side, contiguous to the plains of Moab and the desert or or wilderness terrain of that region. The wilderness identifies 
John the Baptist as being a man of the land in between. He is a man of the land in between. As the wilderness was the land in between of Israel's sojourn, so John the Baptist takes his position in the land in between. In between. John the Baptist in the location which transitions from the era of anticipation to the era of realization. Even as the wilderness of Sinai, the wilderness on the plains of Moab, was the land of transition. Transition between sojourn and settlement. John the Baptist, who will he be? What will he be? He will be a man of the land in between. And therefore, a pivotal, a pivotal figure in the transition between the era that is passing away and the era that is about to erupt on the stage of history as he abruptly erupts upon the stage of Judaism saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, for the Lord is coming into the wilderness to consummate that era of transition and to bring in the era of realization, fulfillment, and actualization. These little tidbits, which Luke sprinkles here by connecting the the in-the-desert motif with John the Baptist at the end of chapter 1 when he's a boy, with the in the desert motif when he's a grown man in chapter 3, verse 2, and he reappears, that is pregnant theological imagery. It is packed with the significance of the wilderness motif throughout the whole Bible. All right. Now, that leaves us with the next little outline on your page verses 67 to 80. And once again, I'd like you to explain the method to my madness, why I have positioned verse 67 and verse 80 over one another. So we're looking for a recursive element or an element of symmetry or duplication. And what do you find? Okay, you find the Holy Spirit in verse 67. What do you find in verse 80? You're still on the floor, Abigail. The child grew and became strong in the spirit. It became strong in the spirit. Okay, so we have spirit uncapitalized in verse 80. We have spirit capitalized in verse 67 because the adjective holy goes alongside it. They are the same Greek word. They are the same, they are the form of the same Greek word for spirit. Now this interests me, not just because we have spirit recurring. This interests me because I wonder is the one epexegetical of the other. That is, is the Holy Spirit of verse 67 that spirit of verse 80 in which he is growing and becoming stronger. Hmm. 
Would Luke be that subtle? Hmm, you better believe it. Well, do I have any ammunition to back me up? Now, I'm raising the question undogmatically. I'm intrigued by this frame around 67 and 80. I'm wondering if it's not merely coincidental. And if it's not, then is Luke suggesting something more profound? In verse 15 of chapter 1, we're told that John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit from his conception. And then in verse 41 of this first chapter, it confirms that his life in the Spirit of God is present while he's in utero. He is in the Spirit while he's in his mother. Is this verse then, which tells about his childhood, his maturation, his growing up, is this verse indicating growth, strength, and maturity in the Holy Spirit, the capital S Spirit of God understood? Well, you may not be persuaded and... Commentators aren't either, but I'm used to being a minority. I'm not dogmatic about this, but I am intrigued by it. So, I simply raise the question to tantalize you, to whet your appetite, but to urge you not to forget that even from verse 15 of chapter 1, we know that this child is full of the Holy Ghost. Is it conceivable that spirit in verse 80 is not that same Holy Ghost? (laughs) I don't think so, but. All right, 66, 68 and 78. We have the large outer frame, which has the duplication of the word spirit. Now, what do we have in this smaller frame? This frame that actually brackets the Benedictus. What do you see in verse 68 that you also see in verse 78? Visiting from God. He's visited, God has visited them. Very good. The word visited or visit in verse 78 is duplicated. Same Greek word. So we have a visitation motif around or framing the Benedictus of Zechariah. And then in verses 76 to 77, and I placed it at the center of this kind of little outline, the chief character of this unit 57 to 80, but not, please note, the chief character of verses 67 to 75 and 78 to 79. Notice in verse 76, he is addressed, his father addresses him as you child. And then in 77, who is going to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin, which was the message John the Baptist preached. So 76 and 77 are not about who 67 to 75 and 78 to 79 are about. Well, who are 67 to 75 and 78 to 79 about? They're about Jesus. 
John the Baptist decreases as Jesus Christ increases. More, more of the song of the Benedictus about the chief dramatic character of the whole gospel than about John the, God, John the Baptist who receives only two mentions. Important, but nonetheless, not the amount of information that we have in this song about the one who is bringing the salvation. The Baptist is only preparing the way for that salvation. Okay. Now, so far in this gospel, outside of the prologue, we have noted that there is this basic paradigm or overarching motif that Luke is using namely the lifting up of the lowly and the humble and the bringing down of the proud and the lifted up. Now, on the top of the second page of your outline, you have a chiasm, which is not original with me. I've indicated where it comes from. It comes from a German commentary, recent German commentary by Eduard Schweizer, <coughs> But it's translated in uh, the chiasm is translated into English in James Edwards' recent commentary on the Gospel of John. Edwards, whom I mentioned, teaches at Whitworth College over there in Spokane. <clears throat> mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. Now, does this chiasm <clears throat> follow that proposed pattern or paradigm of humiliation and exaltation? In other words, as you go through the Benedictus from verses 67 through 78, do you have a kind of exaltation of the lowly and humiliation of the proud? We had that in the Magnificat. We had that in the first Christmas hymn. As you read through this Benedictus, do you have that? It doesn't appear to be the pattern. This Benedictus is a joyful exaltation in the visitation of salvation. And it's long length, and it is the longest of the Christmas hymns, its long length is devoted to that joyous acclamation of the coming near of the redemption of Israel. So this chiasm is not a chiasm of reversal in terms of humiliation and exaltation, pivoting on verses 72 and 73, the Old Testament fathers. No, this chiasm is actually a mirror reflection. It's a mirror reflection at the beginning and end of the lifting up of God's people in blessedness. For each duplicated word at the opening or at the closing of this chiasm is a a repeated emphasis upon the uplifting character of God's day of visiting his people with deliverance, redemption, etc. So the chiasm is not based upon this reverse paradigm of humiliation and exaltation, It is singularly reflecting the tone of 
the, the Benedictus, namely reflecting the uplifting of God's people with the blessedness of their salvation and liberation. Well, we particularly have a pattern in this Benedictus. And I've alluded to it already. There is a major motif here with attendant Lightfurter, or key word. So if you skim down the verses of the Benedictus reading from 67 on down, 68 on down, I'm sorry, as you skim down the Benedictus, what words do you see jumping out at you? Some of them exact duplications and some of them synonyms for that exact duplication. What's the common motif of this song of Zechariah? Salvation. salvation. Do you see salvation anywhere else? What verse does the word salvation first appear in? 69. 69. Does it appear in any other verses? 71. Does it appear in any other verses? 77. Very good. All right. Now, do we have any synonyms of salvation? Very good. What verse, Ben? 68. We have the word redemption. What else? Deliverance. What verse? 74. Verse 74. What else? One more. That's fine. Uh, it would also be a synonym. Yes, very good, Ben. What verse? 77 again, the forgiveness of sins. All right, so here we have six words in the space of this song of blessing to God. Six words, three of which are repeated, three others of which are synonyms or related cognates. In other words, this motif is the salvation, redemption, deliverance, liberation, forgiveness that God is bringing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Well, of course you would. Wouldn't you? Don't you bless the Lord God and Father of Jesus Christ? For salvation, for redemption, for deliverance, for emancipation, for forgiveness of sins. All right, so the key word here is this pattern of praising God, blessing God for his salvation. The exaltation of the people of God. The joyous uplifting of the Israel of God by way of redemption, salvation, deliverance, in the cleansing of sin. All of that is packed into this song and reemphasized six times over. That is certainly there. 
But as we rejoice in that uplifting and are uplifted by it in our rejoicing, as we should be, we must not lose sight of the event which makes all this rejoicing possible. We must not lose sight of the event which makes all this uplifted, exultant rejoicing possible. We must not lose sight of it because Luke does not. Luke does not lose sight of that event, and the Benedictus is his mirror by way of Zechariah's song upon that event. That event that makes salvation joy possible is mirrored in this language of exaltation. It is the event of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the birth of the Son of God. Now, I've indicated that Luke is using a mirror here, not like the mirror structure that Schweizer gives on the top of your page. No, this is a more profound mirror, and we want to examine it in detail after we come back from our break. So, what I am suggesting is that there is something embedded in this language of exaltation and it is embedded in this language as a result of the event which this language features. You can chew on that while you have your cookie or whatever you have at your break. All right. This humiliation, exaltation pattern is a pattern of reversal. A pattern of reversal signaled magnificently in the incarnation, which is the event behind this Benedictus and the Magnificat and all four of Luke's Christmas hymns. That incarnation broadcasts a self-disclosure of God, a self-disclosure of God in a reversal, a reversal from ontological to historical, a reversal from eternal to temporal, a reversal from creator to creature, a reversal from transcendent to vicariously imminent. But this reversal, this reversal which joins two aspects, two arenas, two dimensions, this reversal uniting ontological in historical, this reversal uniting eternal in temporal, 
this reversal uniting creator in creature. This reversal uniting transcendent and imminent. This reversal is a uniting of the divine nature in the human nature. This is the event embedded in the language of the Benedictus. That means that the interface or interaction between the two arenas is found in that one person who unites the two arenas. Which means that that one person reverses himself. He reverses himself in incarnation. That means that that one exalted person reverses himself in humiliation. That means that that one exalted person who is eternal reverses himself in the temporal. That means that that one person exalted as the ontological reverses himself in the historical. This means that that one exalted person who is creator reverses himself to become creature. And that means that that one exalted person who is sinless reverses himself to become a sinner. Paul's doctrine, not mine. Paul's doctrine. He made him to be sin who knew no sin on our behalf. On our behalf, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 The reverse pattern. The pattern of the exalted one reversing himself in humiliation on our behalf, becoming a sinner vicariously as a substitute. This one person taking all the miseries and curses of the sinful estate as part of the great reversal visited upon him. This one person participating in, by him, incarnation. Hence, this one to be exposed to sin. This one to be observing sin. This one to experience the effects of sin, suffering pain, pierced through the flesh till his blood flows out in death. He will expire. He will be buried in the grave. He will be held down by the wages of sin. He will experience the utter humiliation of reversal. He will undergo all this humiliation, all this reversal of his exalted glory in order to accomplish salvation. Salvation, that exhilarating exaltation 
which we all crave, which we all enjoy as we crave and enjoy the reversal of his humiliation and his exaltation. The dead creature raised up from the dead as creator over all. The temporal corpse reversed in an eternal resurrection body. The historic sufferer justified as the ontological innocent one. The human nature resurrected on account of its union with the divine nature. The condemned, bleeding, crucified criminal reversed in the justified, healed of his wounds, resurrected, acquitted Savior. Embedded in this Benedictus is the event of incarnational reversal. The pattern of humiliation and exaltation in our Lord Jesus is twofold. Ontological exaltation reversed to historical humiliation. And then the reversal of the reversal. Historical humiliation reversed to ontological exaltation via resurrection, ascension, session. Let us trace this reversal through Zechariah's benediction. The pattern flows around and within the light verter, which we've already identified. Salvation, which requires the reverse, condemnation. Redemption, which requires the reverse, bondage to the curse. Deliverance, which requires the reverse, Captivity to the principalities of darkness. Forgiveness of sins, which requires the reverse. Declared guilty of sins. Verse 68. God has visited us with salvation by visiting his son with bondage to the curse of condemnation. It is embedded in the event. He will not save his son from the cross to which he will be bound and nailed. His son will be crucified and humiliated in full view of history. In full view of history in which the father will unson him the Father will unsun him for an instant. He will allow malediction to fall on the one of eternal benediction, the one of eternal benediction in his eternal blessed filiation. The reversal is embedded in the event. The event which reaches up to heaven's very throne, even as it reaches down to the depths of Sheol. Verse 69. God will raise up salvific redemption 
in power and might by reversing the might and power of his son in the bondage and weakness of the bloody cross. This Davidide, this Davidide who will endure what no servant David could ever bear. In fact, that protological David will yearn for, long for this eschatological David to wash him whiter than snow, to purge him with hyssop, to new create him with a different heart, a heart broken for his sin, yea, a heart contrite for his iniquities. This eschatological David, Savior, will take to his heart all that the protological David sinner, all that protological David's offensive and wicked heart produced. And that eschatological David will reverse all of that with his non-wicked and inoffensive heart. Even for that sinful first David, this sinless last David will bear the reversal deserved by all sinners and leave in its place salvation, cleansing, purging, and washing away of sin and transgression. The reversal is embedded in the event, and the event is being sung by the text. Verse 70. God will reverse judgment unto condemnation and destruction proclaimed by the prophets of old. His son will bear vicariously the judgment unto condemnation and wrath predicted by those Old Testament seers and prophets. He will bear it so as to reverse their judgment oracles with the day of salvation they prophesied. Behold, my servant and mine elect, says the prophet Isaiah. He will be wounded for our transgressions. He shall be bruised for our iniquities. The prophetic word is embedded in the text. The reversal of the prophetic paradigm is embedded in the text. Behold, I will make a new covenant, declares the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah. I will write it on their heart, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Behold, says the Lord through the prophet Ezekiel, I will search for my sheep as a shepherd cares for his scattered sheep, so I will deliver them from all the places where they are scattered. I will feed my flock. I will seek the lost. I will bind up the brokenhearted and I will give them rest. The prophet Daniel declares the Messiah will be cut off to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The Lord says to the prophet Hosea, 
I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. Ru Hama on her that was low, Ru Hama. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. To low Ami, I will say Ami. And they will say, thou art our God. It will come about, says the Lord to the prophet Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In that day, saith the Lord to the prophet Amos, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and all the nations who are called by my name I will also restore my people and plant them in the land which I have given them and from which they will never again be rooted out. Through the prophet Obadiah, the Lord pledges the exiles, the deliverers. The exiles, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And the prophet Jonah, the prophet Jonah, whose story is the very prophecy of the narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Eschatological death and resurrection in the former prophetic death and resurrection. The reversal is mirrored in the prophet And in the event, the Lord through the prophet Micah, I will wait for the God of my salvation who pardons iniquity and does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love and will have compassion upon us. The prophet Nahum declares, the Lord is good. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings Evangelion, good news, who announces peace. God, the Lord, says to the prophet Habakkuk, Behold, the just shall live by faith. I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation The Lord God is my strength. The Lord says to the prophet Zephaniah, Shout for joy. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will exult over you. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I. The Lord will bring you in. Thus says the Lord of hosts through the prophet Haggai, My spirit is abiding in your midst, and once more I am going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land, and the glory of this latter house will be greater than the former, and in this place I will give shalom.
The Lord speaks to the prophet Zechariah. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. I will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Behold, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, by the mouth of the prophet Malachi. Zechariah's Benedictus confirms the words of the Old Testament prophets. Their prophetic litany of salvation is a litany of humiliation reversed in exaltation and that by way of incarnation, which though they did not see it, nonetheless they believed in it and believed it from afar off. It has now arrived embedded in the event of incarnational reversal lying within the text of Zechariah's hymn. Verse 71. The Savior will reverse the enmity and hatred by making himself the enemy and the hated one. No, not just in terms of the animosity and hatred of those who crucified him, for we are all part of that company by nature. But this one will expose himself to the just enmity and just hatred of heaven vicariously again, as the humiliation which is due to sinners falls upon him. So that salvation from that just enmity and righteous hatred may be performed and accomplished and completed in history. Verse 72. He will reverse the no mercy owed to transgressors, the covenant curse which heaven remembers against the wicked by vicariously making himself an object of no mercy. He will make himself condescendingly, humiliatingly, voluntarily an object of no mercy so that he will cause mercy and justice to kiss one another and then be exalted as the ever-merciful Savior and covenant scion, the seed of covenant blessing, covenant mercy, to every tribe and nation and tongue under heaven. Verse 73. He will be the, sing the singular fulfiller of the oath sworn to Father Abraham. Not only Abraham's eschatological seed or son, but the blessing for the Gentiles, pledged by God to Abram and the heir to a land eternal in the heavens, 
thus making the sons and daughters of Abraham co-heirs and joint heirs of that heavenly country. That land of the eschatological Canaan, that country of everlasting milk and honey. Thus, in the event embedded in verse 73, in the event of the incarnation, which is the incarnation of the fullness of the covenant with Abraham, he will reverse more than 2,000 years of waiting. Reverse 2,000 years of waiting to fulfill the oath sworn to our father Abraham. Verse 74. He will be the eschatological servant of the Lord, bowing in honor and respect to God his Father, laying his sword and armor down. Laying his sword and armor down in final deliverance of his elect servants from the tyrants and sycophants, the liars and perverts who crush the righteous and oppress the godly. That tyranny will humiliate him. That deceit and perversion will humble him. That warfare will bloody and bruise his armor and discolor his sword. He will enter the warfare on behalf of others, others whom he will represent as he solely, singly, solitarily submits to the terror and warfare of the enemy, his enemy, the enemy of those whom he represents. He will submit, voluntarily reversing his glory and power. He will submit to that brutal warfare of conflict, reversing his own omnipotence with impotence. He will reverse his majesty with humility. He will reverse his great glory with pitiful lowliness. He will deliver himself in reversal to the enemy and serve the tyrant of evil unto death. So that when the powers of hell have been unleashed upon him, He may reverse the reversal, delivering himself and all those whom he represents from their enemies to serve him in glory and honor without fear forever and ever, even as he has reversed that reversal and serves his father with glory and honor forever and ever in exalted blessedness. Verse 75, he humbles himself, reversing his righteousness and his holiness with a vicarious opposite. The appearance of unrighteousness taken on him, reckoned to him, certainly so regarded by those during his life on earth who saw him as a devil, a servant of the kingdom of Satan. 
He will take to himself the visage of sacrilege, unholy vice with which he was accused. This too he bears with the shame and disgrace of the reverse state of his humiliation and does so in order that he may turn the reverse into the obverse. Out of vicarious unrighteousness, perfect righteousness. Out of vicarious unholiness, pristine holiness. The reverse is embedded in the text because Luke presents the incarnation in the song of Zechariah. And finally, verses 78 and 79, we skip verses 76 and 77 because they deal with John the Baptist. We're focusing upon the incarnational reversal. The sunrise from on high. This light of the world. This one who shines from glory to glory reverses his radiant brilliance to enter into the darkness. To feel the darkness of the shadow of death. To experience the inky blackness of the kingdom of darkness, death, dereliction, desertion, detention for a time. This glorious son of the eternal kingdom of everlasting light is consumed for a time with darkness, death, the black grip of hell, the inky, terrifying grasp of the grave. This prince of peace descends, albeit vicariously, to be regarded as the reverse, to be regarded as the anti-prince of war. An apparent ally of the kingdom of darkness, death, bondage to the grave, fomenter of eternal war against the kingdom of light and immortality. Or so he is reckoned. Or so he is accounted. Or so he is regarded by those who view him not vicariously, but actually the antithesis of their pride when, in fact, he is the majestic Son of God in light eternal who bends himself to their antithesis, only to emerge the antithesis of the antithesis in resurrection on Easter morn. The profundity of the incarnation is the unimaginable profundity of the God of glory reversing himself with everything miserable, awful, horrible, and hellish about the sinful condition of sinful men and women like you and me. But that is what is embedded in the text. It is embedded in the event that the text is describing. It is embedded in the whole history of redemption from the prophets back to Moses and on to the apostles. It is embedded in the whole narrative. It is embedded because the person lived it. And the person lived it is the eschatological reversal of humiliation 
with exaltation. Well might Zechariah sing his hymn. Blessed be the Lord our God, who has visited us with salvation by his everlasting, eternal, perfectly righteous, holy, sinless, son, warrior son of heaven, glorious scion of the eternal Father, this eternally begotten Son of the Father, who turns himself to a creature in order to save the sinful creature, to bring them to his Father, along with his exultant return from history to the eschaton. We must not forget the humiliation, exaltation pattern, even with Zechariah's Benedictus. We must not forget it because it is the warp and woof of the story. It is the warp and woof of Luke's story as it is warp and woof of Christ's story. Its very joyful exaltation presupposes that some historic person must embody, must incarnate, must incarnate the reverse, the antithesis. Some ontological person must become the antithesis in humiliation so that in history ontology may win the victory over the devilish antithesis which holds the world in its hellish thrall. Zechariah, you see, sings more than a song of blessed exaltation. Embedded in the joyous, uplifting message is the humiliation of the Savior, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Forgiver. Embedded in the joyous exaltation is the blessed incarnation of the Son of God. Ontic deity come in the likeness of sinful flesh. Any questions or comments that you have on Zechariah's hymn? Yes, Scott. Yeah, um Christ's humiliation and exaltation applied to these. You were also saying that the movement from 68 on through 79 was itself showed ontology through history. Uh, maybe I missed that, but can you show how that is? Is there an ontological emphasis in verses 68 to, say, 73 or something like that? that and then a historical emphasis as you go into later verses? Or? No, I, I'm arguing from the nature of the person behind the event. I'm not arguing from explicit ontological patterns in the text. Okay, I'm simply saying that because it's the description 
of the incarnation of the Son of God, then there's an ontological paradigm behind it. That's helpful. Like initially, I thought you were going to vote. So thank you. If you if you can show me both, I'll be even happier. Closest you get to it is the oath with Abraham and the <clears throat> the words of the prophets, but you see that doesn't get you back to uh, to the creation and before the creation. So I take the dignity of who he is and the event of who he is coming into human history, and I attach those aspects to it, those dimensions to it, and that then for informs the language here. I can't prove that every element that I've mentioned is in the mind of Luke, but I think it's drawn out of the imagery because it's part of the person of Christ. It's who he is as well as what he's done. So I may be actually elaborating or amplifying what's implied in the language that Zechariah used and Luke records. But I'm doing so in orthodox Christological style. So I'm trying to bring together, you see, what one might call the ordo salutis with respect to historia salutis. I'm trying to bring together what we might call the systematic category with the redemptive historical category, joining them as the divine and human nature are hypostatically united in effect. Whether that's successful or not, uh, you may be the judge, but it certainly enriches the vocabulary of the passage because the event remains central. The person and the event remain central. In other words, Christ remains central. Christ remains Not the receivers of redemption. Right. They are involved. They are central in him. Covenantal language guarantees that. All right, Lord willing, next week, Gloria in excelsis. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, how can we magnify your great heart of love to sinners when we realize the depth of the riches, poignancy of the incarnation. You parting with your son. You allowing him to take on that which was not his nature, namely a created human nature taking it on in such a way as he did not lose the essential being of his divine nature. A great mystery to us who contemplate it, but nonetheless, that which is at the core of our salvation and redemption. How could a mere creature, how could a mere creature come before you and save himself, let alone save anyone else. Surely that is folly. 
No. It would take very God of very God to pay an eternal penalty, take an eternal person to satisfy and propitiate everlasting wrath. It would take a reversal in which an eternal person would become the object of eternal wrath and cancel it in an instant for his sons and daughters. We do bless you for the majestic and magnificent pattern that we find here in Luke's gospel because we bless you for the majestic, majestic, majestic and glorious person who is revealed in this gospel. And we pray, Lord, fervently, we pray that we may indeed see Jesus here wonderfully, marvelously, in ways that we've not seen him before. For the sake of your glory and the edification of your church and our own weak and humble faith, which needs lifted up day by day through our Lord Jesus Christ, by the operation of his spirit. Amen.